You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. John Harper, Vice President of Clinical Sciences at LifeCell Corporation of New Jersey and Adjunct Professor of Biomedical Science at the University of Texas in Houston. Today we are discussing bioprosthetics. Welcome, Dr. Harper. Thank you, Dr. Hill. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Harper, when we're talking about a collagen or scaffold matrix, we all learned that tensile strength is related to cross-linking of collagen. Are these bioprosthetics cross-linked? Well, if you start with a tissue scaffold like skin, we know that skin has normal levels of cross-linking, and cross-linking is really the chemical bonding between the collagen molecules. We know that as we age and as we get exposed to the sun, for example, those cross-links increase. This is a form of damage that occurs in our tissues. So there is a certain level of cross-linking, but that level of cross-linking doesn't affect normal metabolism. So our tissues are constantly remodeling and, and turning over. Uh, cells are migrating through these tissues in the presence of these these crosslinks or this damage, as you would call it. When you take out the cells from this scaffold, are there still crosslinks within them? There are still those normal crosslinks. And our process of taking out the cells and preparing and producing the bioprosthesis is done in, or, in such a way that we don't introduce any new crosslinks. Because our goal is to have that scaffold uh, available to the patient by the surgeon, just as it was in the original tissue. Now, with the plastic prostheses that we have used in the past, the companies would always say this is a better, stronger, greater tensile strength prosthetic. Well, for surgeons, if some is good, then more is better. Is there a way and an advantage to increasing the crosslinks in this scaffold of collagen? Well, there's certainly a way of creating more crosslinks within scaffolds. How is that? Well, you treat, there are certain chemicals that are designed to create new chemical bonds between proteins. And we've been doing this for many, many years to preserve things. You can take specimens, for example, and crosslink them with uh, chemicals like glutaraldehyde or formaldehyde. We're all familiar with that. Well, these tissues will be around forever. The, the normal oxidative processes that break down tissues can't occur. Well, wouldn't that be a good thing? Well, um, it really wouldn't be a good thing if you think about it because uh, we know that cells migrate around our tissues using collagenases. They will express collagenases on the leading edge, and they will basically eat their way through tissues. That's how our normal tissues behave, and that's how our cells migrate around our body. Well, if we treat the tissue with, with a cross-linking agent to increase the level of cross-linking, we're going to slow down that process because the collagenases that cells make are no longer able to digest the matrix and bore that hole, if you will. So the way cells migrate around is that they bore a hole, they crawl into that space, and then they fill in the gap behind themselves. If you treat the, the tissue with a, a cross-linker, then those cells can't migrate by their normal mechanism. And why is that significant? Well, that's because we want these things to integrate. When you put a bioprosthetic into a patient, you want the patient's body to grow into it as soon as possible. The longer you delay that process, the more that scaffold is at risk of long-term infection. So where does that leave us in terms of the regenerative process versus encapsulation with respect to cross-linking? 
Well, the regenerative process requires that cells get into the bioprosthesis and that vasculature grows in to feed those cells. Once that scaffold becomes metabolic, it becomes a new tissue, and it can then support the regenerative process. If we treat it with a crosslinker and prevent that cell ingrowth or prevent vascularization, the body will see it as foreign and will grow around it. And that will really prevent that scaffold from supporting regeneration because the cells growing in are what really cause the regenerative process. So if I understand you correctly, the addition of artificial crosslinks actually would be counterproductive in terms of getting a regenerative process and allowing this tissue to incorporate within the native tissue as opposed to being looked at as a foreign body. That's correct. And and I'd like to, to make it clear that when you generate abnormal crosslinking, the body can, over a long period of time, break down some of these crosslinks and eventually get some cell ingrowth in some cases. We haven't seen that experimentally, and that's been published in the literature. Several articles have been published looking at crosslink materials versus non-crosslink materials and their ability to become integrated. And it's pretty clear from the literature that crosslink materials don't become integrated as well or at all um, compared to non-crosslink bioprostheses. How long does it take for these bioprosthetics to be integrated? We've seen cells grow into these materials within three or four days. Albeit these are in animal models, but if we put these materials in animals, we can see cell ingrowth and vascularization within the first week that it's in the in the animal. In patients, uh, anecdotally, we see uh, every now and then we'll see uh, explants from patients, and by one month, for example, the material is almost completely integrated. If you operate on someone who had a bioprosthetic, a human acellular tissue matrix, a year ago, what would it look like both to the gross eye and the microscope? Well, from a surgeon's perspective, if you reoperated on someone, what you would see would be something that looked like tissue. It might appear slightly whiter than the surrounding tissue, but if you cut it, it would bleed. Uh, you could suture it back together and treat it just like you would the patient's normal tissue. And we've seen this time and time again. Sometimes patients will develop secondary uh, conditions that you might need to operate through a bioprosthesis. Reports I've heard from surgeons that I've spoken to have said that they can reoperate through the material, they can suture it back together, and it heals like you would heal normal tissue. Now, the interesting thing is, is that if you take some of this material and send it to the path lab, especially if you use it in the abdomen, the most common report you get back from the pathologist is normal fascia. So the pathologist looks at it under the microscope, and he reports back to the surgeon it's normal fascia because the pathologist doesn't know what he's looking at. He doesn't understand necessarily. He's blinded to the fact that that a bioprosthetic has been put in place. So he's just reading the the morphology of the tissue, but it looks like normal fascia-like tissue. Are we really saying that bioprosthetics are the ideal prosthetics? Well, we think that it certainly carries many of the features of the ideal prosthetic. We like to see something that becomes integrated. If it can transition into the patient's own tissue, that's also a big plus. If it becomes metabolic, sometimes metabolism is one of the great Uh, forgotten things when we're talking about restoring structure and function to someone. Metabolism is very important from the standpoint of their physician being able to treat them medically uh, with drugs and so forth. From a practical perspective, are human acellular tissue matrix prosthetics difficult to use? We find that it may not be more difficult, but many times the techniques that are to be used are different than the techniques used when you're using a a synthetic prosthesis. Such as? 
Well, for example, most surgeons are trained to put synthetic plastic meshes in the abdomen or other places in a tension-free fashion, not to put it on tension. In fact, if you leave it a little bit lax, that's also good. So if you hand a surgeon a bioprosthetic material, if they think that they're just going to slot that into that exact same technique, they will not have a successful uh, outcome. Why? Well, as you would imagine, bioprosthetics have natural elasticity because they come from tissue, which is very pliable. And if you just lay that in to a wound in a tension-free fashion, when the patient wakes up, that native elasticity is going to come out and it's going to bulge and stretch. So what we have to teach surgeons using a bioprosthetic material is that you have to put that material in under tension. Sometimes it's under more tension than the surgeon is comfortable putting it in because they're trained to use the tension-free technique. Suturing a bioprosthetic under tension doesn't cause problems? We have found that if you suture a bioprosthetic material under tension, so you take out the stretch, you underlay it underneath into healthy tissue, and you put the sutures in uh, away from the margin, so underlay it several centimeters away from the edge of the wound, that that tension doesn't necessarily cause a problem, especially on the wound margin where the circulation is compromised already and that tension on the vasculature of the, of the tissue can cause necrosis around in the normal tissue. Well, how do you know then if you suture it under tension that two hours after the operation is complete that that bioprosthetic isn't going to stretch significantly more and you're left to a similar situation as you had preoperatively? I think there's a real challenge there. And putting a bioprosthesis into a patient, obviously it's going from a, a saline solution, which is crystalloid, into a patient's body, which is at 37 degrees C, and it's more of a colloidal environment. There's proteins around. This environment, we think, may change the properties of that scaffold. So if you're in an operation that's an hour and a half long, you put the bioprosthesis in there, you may find that that tension is relaxed before you do your, your final closure, and that that's when you have to really make your judgment call. So I think it's a real judgment call from the immediately following placing the material and right before you close the patient to make sure that you think it's really equilibrated with the surrounding tissue. Now, do these bioprosthetics come in a package and you open up the package and use it straight away? Well, some of them do and some of them don't. I mean, some of them are freeze-dried, so you have to put them into a saline bath and let the carbohydrates that are used to protect the scaffold in the freeze-drying process to dissolve and wash away. And that can take 15 to 30 to 45 minutes sometimes, which if you're planning, it's not a big problem. But if you just determine that you need more than you thought, you could be waiting a little bit. Uh, there are others out there that are ready to use. Some of them are stored in alcohol, other things that, w- that may be somewhat damaging to the scaffold. But I think this, the, the challenge for us in this area is to find ways of making this material ready to use without this sort of rehydration step. But yet it protects the integrity of the scaffold during the storage process. Does the freeze drying hurt the scaffold? We've developed a way to freeze-dry tissue so that it doesn't damage the scaffold, and that's with a carbohydrate-stabilizing solution. And uh, that's been one of the things that we've been working on for the longest time. We think the structure is so important that it almost, uh, it's almost worth the time to rehydrate it in order to have that scaffold in this proper form. And once we figure out how to store it in a ready-to-use configuration without damaging the scaffold, then we will certainly do that. If you don't hydrate the specimen long enough, what will happen? Well, we know that when the material, which is normally very pliable, when you think of skin being pliable, 
if it's freeze-dried, it's like cardboard. And if it's not fully rehydrated, then it hasn't really regained all of its normal biomechanical properties. So it hasn't become as pliable as it's supposed to be. So if you put that material in the patient, it will continue to hydrate in that patient and gain back those properties. But by then, you've already put it on tension, and you will lose that tension as the patient rehydrates it in the body. I want to thank Dr. John Harper, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing bioprosthetics. I am Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, your host, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.